Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Big shout out to Ian for like recording a podcast on the day his book comes out and like only name dropping that once per podcast. <laughs> Plus it's on a directly relevant topic. I know, right? I actually like, I kind of want Matt to plug Ian's book because Ian didn't do enough of that. I, I mean, I am not going to complain about that. All right. Everybody also go read Ian's book. <laughs> 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 Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Fox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Ian Milheiser, ProPublica's Dara Lind. We had planned to do a little bit of a off-the-news sort of show about judicial nominations. I mean, knowing that this would be a topic, but uh, we were not expecting to be recording on the very day that Biden puts forward his first group of judicial nominees. Uh, I don't know if that's good timing or bad timing. I mean, Matt says this. I, I'm convinced that Matt has a key source deep in the Biden administration who told him, you know, if you were tempted to do something, quote unquote, off the news, <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I would have done it last week to seem prescient. Ah, now no. we just seem like losers. But, you know, <laughs> we, we have Ian with us on the schedule. He knows about this. Um, so who who is on the list? Who makes the cut? So we have a list of 11 nominees, and, and I'll preface this by saying that when you look at like what Democratic activist groups were asking for, they were really asking for two things. One is demographic diversity, and then the second is what I will call experiential diversity, you know, people who have done something other than being a prosecutor or being a law firm partner before they were nominated for, for the judiciary. And I think that Biden met both of those asks with with this list. I mean, one thing that's very striking about the federal appeals court right now, um, there are only five black women out of like 180 something active judges on the federal appeals courts. And the youngest of those women is 69 years old. So that's a really underrepresented demographic on the U.S. Court of Appeals. Biden named three women to um, U.S. Court of Appeals um, jobs. These are the only circuit judges that he named. And all three of them are black women. So he will almost double the number of black women on the circuit courts. Five of these lawyers are have a criminal defense background and specifically either a public defense or like some sort of indigent defense background. Only two are prosecutors. And that's very unusual. Prosecutors were very overrepresented in Obama's nominees. Here we see a huge representation for indigent defenders. Um, so it's a very diverse list demographically. It's a very diverse list experientially with one caveat, and that's 
you you know, like Republicans, I think, have moved somewhat to the left on at least the judicial side of criminal justice reform. You know, we, we had the first step act that was signed by Trump. You know, sure, there's all the anti-police rhetoric, but I, I the think pro-police rhetoric. Right. Yeah. Pro-police rhetoric. Yes. Um, but I think that being a public defender is not something that really angers Senate Republicans. I do not see anyone on this list who has, say, a voting rights background. You, you know, under Trump, you saw lawyers who litigated to limit voting rights. You saw very, you know, anti-LGBT lawyers. You saw anti-abortion lawyers. And so I don't see anyone on this list that I would describe as a liberal activist in the same way that many of Trump's nominees were conservative activists. But, you know, there's this tremendous representation of people who have specifically done work for poor people at the most vulnerable moment in their lives. And that's, I think, a serious change from what we've seen from any prior president's list of nominees. Can we kind of get a sense of the landscape here? You mentioned kind of in passing the number of current circuit court judges. And I think that because our you know, the, the national conversation about the judiciary is so focused on the Supreme Court, the kind of scope of the rest of the judiciary isn't something that people necessarily like have on call. Can we just kind of like survey the landscape of how many folks are out there and uh, how many of them were appointed by the last guy? Sure. So there's about between eight and nine hundred active federal judges at all levels in the country. Most of them are what are called district judges. That's the lowest rank. Those are trial judges. There's about one hundred and eighty active judges who are on the U.S. Courts of Appeals. And those are very powerful. The circuit judges, they're very powerful. And then there's nine on the Supreme Court. Trump had an enormous influence at the two highest levels of the judiciary. So a third of the Supreme Court is Trump appointees. And there are more there are more Trump appointees on the Supreme Court and there are more active Trump judges on the U.S. Court of Appeals than there are active Obama judges on the U.S. Court of Appeals, even though Obama was president for twice as long as Donald Trump. And the reason for that is that Republicans, I mean, I have a I literally have a book coming out today. It's called The Agenda. It's about how Republicans plan to use the courts to enact you know, their policy agenda. They really care about this. You know, during Obama's last two years in office, Mitch McConnell put an almost complete blockade, not just on Supreme Court nominees from Obama, but on circuit court nominees, because McConnell wanted a Republican to fill those seats. And so the reason why Trump had so much influence is because he didn't just get to fill the four years worth of slots that, you know, he was supposed to get to fill while he was president. He also got to fill almost all the slots that Obama should have gotten to fill in his last two years. Republicans care a ton about this. And then you also have to mention the change to the um filibuster rules, right? So for Obama's first four years in office, his judicial nominees required 60 votes to get through. He found many people who got 60 votes, you know, eventually, but that meant that they were all bipartisan deals. And it was only in a, what's about an 18 month span that Obama operated under the the post filibuster rules with a Democratic majority in the Senate. So then Trump became the first president to really be able to confirm judges by sort of majority rule throughout his whole first term. Judicial machine goes, yes, you know, which which impacts who can get on the bench. But it also impacts the pace with which you can do some of these things, because it makes some of the vetting stuff less kind of 
significant, right? Because the the, the rules that Senate Republicans were playing by uh, during Obama's first term were that they weren't blockading all of his picks via filibuster. But if they could come up with some kind of reason to sort of strike you down like they would, so then you had to be quite sort of measured uh, yeah. in, in your approach to selecting people. And I do think that, you know, part of what you what you now see from these Biden picks, it's not like the same as what Trump did, but it's the Democratic version. It's like, OK, here's here's what we can do when we're not trying to bend over backward to appeal to Republican sensibilities. Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. I mean, that's why I think Obama did pick a lot of prosecutors and law partners, because he was more likely to get the 10 or 15 or however many Republican votes he needed in order to break a filibuster. I mean, that said, I mean, I want to point out that, like, what Trump did is really unique in that, like, Trump picked a lot of nominees whose sole purpose seemed to be to own the libs. You know, I mean, judges who spent their career alternating between Christian right litigation trying to strip LGBT people of rights and voting rights litigation trying to disenfranchise people. And, you know, a, you know, I don't know if we necessarily want the Democratic equivalent of whoever that person would be on the bench. I mean, these are supposed to be judges who apply the law impartially. But Biden so far is showing that, like, he wants to have people who have shown that they're the sort of person who, given a world of opportunity, given a Harvard Law degree and a fancy clerkship and the ability to do anything with their career, will decide that they want to spend that time providing criminal defense work to poor people. And that's very admirable. I also feel like there's a there's a like a bigger like like grand asymmetry here, which is that Criminal defense is unusual in the in the landscape in that there really is a sort of progressive agenda on criminal justice issues that they would like to put through the courts, right? I mean, it, the Supreme Court isn't going to rule that the death penalty is unconstitutional, but if Democrats got to fill all the Supreme Court vacancies, it probably would, right? That's like a a classic thing that like it's it's tractable. Like the, the federal courts can really make uh, changes in what kinds of punishments are allowed. A lot of elite progressives want to see those kinds of changes made. A lot of Democratic Party elected officials uh, don't love the politics of that kind of thing. And so advancing certain criminal justice things through the judiciary kind of makes sense. But conservatives are like that on like dozens and dozens of topics. I, I mean, I, I remember back, this was now years ago, but, you know, I, I was at Vox and we we're sitting around. And we were like, OK, if Justice Scalia is replaced by a Democrat, it's like, what's going to happen? And and the answer wasn't like nothing. But the answer also wasn't like there's going to be earth shattering changes in the nature of American society. Like Democrats just like don't have a particularly ambitious uh, scope of things that they that they like wanted to do through the courts. I mean, I will say I I think it's worth reframing the conversation about jurisprudence on criminal justice because there is the avenue by which it's like policy making by other means, but also there is a lot of criminal justice policy that straight up is the sole prerogative of the judicial branch. <laughs> like, yes. and in many of those regards, stuff that we don't even think of as high profile Supreme Court cases, both because there aren't like single 
cases that can really swing it one way or the other. It's more of a slow trend in particular findings that bubble up from particular circuit courts. And because they're not policymaking by other means, uh, there has been a noticeable trend over the last several decades that generally observers link to the prevalence of prosecutors on the court compared to criminal defense lawyers and certainly public defenders on, on the major courts of you know, some of the areas of constitutional law that kind of seem like dead letter amendments at this point, frankly, like the question of how robust your Fourth Amendment rights are is very live. The question of how robust your Sixth Amendment, you know, your, your like right to effective assistance of counsel, your right to a jury trial, like those concerns are things that people who aren't professionally involved with criminal defense aren't thinking about a lot, but where there are lots of opportunities for a marginal district or circuit court decision to really shape the law one way or the other. Like sometimes you'll hear ludicrous cases that that kind of represent broader trends on this. Like there was a story that got a lot of traction several years ago about a Louisiana court finding that a defendant who was being questioned and said, I want a lawyer dog, dog being a direct address to the police officer who was interrogating him, (laughs) had not in fact asked for a lawyer because he had asked for a lawyer dog. And so therefore it was okay to continue to question him without requiring, without him having to be put in touch with a lawyer. Like that is obviously a particularly obvious case of this, you know, of a finding that even though common sense would dictate someone has invoked their right to stop questioning, the courts have found that's not in fact the case. There have been a ton of things like that. Same with, you know, Fourth Amendment. When is it required that cops have a warrant before busting into your apartment? What counts as sufficient notice if they just bang on the door and say police and then open the door? Is that, you know, is that okay? Uh, That sort of thing. These are often very fact-dependent rulings in the instance. But once they're started to be used as precedent, they can be used to shape you know, to, to kind of push things in a trend direction one way or the other to a really great extent. So this isn't a Democrat nominees versus Republican nominees thing if you look retrospectively, right? If you're if Barack Obama is nominating a bunch of former prosecutors to the federal bench, these aren't the things that they are going to have been personally attuned to, you know, as, okay, this was something that I was running up against early in my career. But to the extent that there is now a democratic, not just willingness, but interest in putting people on the federal bench who have this life experience, it could be something that we could see as an area of law that is going to be shaped by which president is putting the judges on the bench to begin with. Yeah, no, I think that's a really excellent point about, I mean, the nature of the criminal justice system is that everyone who is convicted has to go through a court. Even if you plead guilty, you have to go through a court. Even, you know, your sentence is handed down by a judge. And there are whole constitutional amendments that can only be interpreted and enforced by the judiciary. You know, the courts have to decide what is an unreasonable search and seizure. So every judge has to have some sort of policy agenda with respect to criminal justice because they will constantly be asked to resolve policy questions related to the criminal justice system. In the civil system, you know, so for non-criminal cases, I think that, you know, with some exceptions, I mean, abortion, for example, is an exception. Democrats, their agenda has historically been just let democracy work. So like, you know, there is no judge that I'm aware of and no one that I know of has made a serious argument that the Constitution requires Medicare for all. 
you know, that that the Supreme Court should say that under the Constitution, you have a constitutional right to have health care. But Republicans can't stop filing lawsuits. There's one in front of the Supreme Court right now asking the Supreme Court to implement the Republican Party's preferred health care policy. You know, there is no legal theory that I'm aware of that says that the Constitution requires like robust environmental regulation. But Republicans, I mean, Gorsuch has an entire theory to dismantle the EPA's ability to regulate the environment, and he probably has five votes for. So, you know, I think that the difference you're seeing, you know, and maybe this does explain why Biden had such a focus on public defenders, is that any judge is going to have to do a lot of policymaking in the criminal justice space. But I think with the exception of a few things, you know, reproductive freedom and then the most important thing is protecting voting rights so we can actually have a democracy. What Democrats have wanted from the judiciary really since Roosevelt is for the courts to take a step away, let democracy work. If Congress wants to pass a health care bill, just uphold that health care bill. If Congress wants to regulate the workplace, just uphold that bill as well, rather than having the judiciary decide what our policy will be in the way that Republicans now seem to prefer. Let's take a break. And I want to ask a question about that. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. I thought, 
Ian, when, when I first started hearing this like sort of progressive talk that they wanted more experiential diversity in, in judges, my understanding of it was that one source of concern was that Democrats were sort of putting on the bench. I mean, there's there's the prosecutors versus criminal defender aspect of it, but kind of like rich guy law firm partners who spend their lives working for big corporations, but who are pro-choice and possibly as a second order consequence of their work, helping giant businesses ruin people's lives, have some sympathy for criminal defendants. And that there was a desire to put on the bench people who might have more progressive views on economics. Right. Who might take a harsher view of like white collar criminal prosecutions or might have uh, a different view of antitrust law or certain kinds of product liability cases where, you know, if, if everybody on the bench comes from doing corporate law work, you have a lot of deference to sort of business defendants in these kinds of cases. That seems like. There's not a change in that regard in this sort of tranche of of Biden judges. But also I wonder, I mean, do you think that that's that's overblown and there aren't super high stakes in that kind of arena? So I think in the short term, the difference between like an Obama nominee who was a law firm partner and a Biden nominee who was a public defender is in the short term probably going to be very small. And the reason for that is that the courts are still very conservative. They're driven by precedent. And at the apex of the judiciary is a very right wing Supreme Court. And the law is also an iterative process. So like even if you're a Supreme Court justice, you can have a really innovative idea about how to, say, make our antitrust law more progressive. And if you can get five votes for it, you can start marching the court incrementally in that direction until until you get that way. But if you don't have five votes for it, then you're just in dissent. And like you could have the greatest idea in the world, but it's not the wall. And so like liberals are going to be in the position of like basically you have this whole web of precedent and this precedent, this web of precedent doesn't strip judges of discretion. Like there's still a range of plausible outcomes and a liberal judge can pick the leftmost plausible outcome within the range of, of, of successful outcomes. But that leftmost outcome is often going to be really far to the right because of who sits on the Supreme Court. And so where I think experiential diversity would really start to matter is like, you know, if Clarence Thomas decides to go pursue his dreams on Broadway or and like Samuel Alito dies in a tragic hot tub accident or something, then there would be five Democrats on the Supreme Court. And then if you had a really smart lefty antitrust lawyer on the Supreme Court, it would really matter because that justice could like really implement a plan through, you know, over the course of a dozen antitrust cases that they might decide over over their career on on the Supreme Court to remake the antitrust law. But, you know, so long as the intellectual leader on the Supreme Court is Neil Gorsuch and not Elena Kagan. I think it's, you know, it's very hard for even the smartest lawyer with like the brightest lefty ideas to make a major difference from inside the judiciary because they're so constrained by the judicial hierarchy. I mean, 
that seems like it's more likely to be true in some regards than others, though, right? Like there are, and I know that like, obviously, stuff like civil procedure is not only less obviously sexy to the mass public, but like also arguably not as important in terms of like shaping the future of the country. But certainly there are some regards in which it's like actually okay that things that are precedent in some circuits aren't precedent in other circuits, right? So where are the areas that you think, you know, a staffed up court of appeals could really take a change and show some autonomy without necessarily getting bench slapped into place by the Supremes? Yeah. I mean, well, one area that matters, you know, is where we start with criminal justice. I, I think that the Supreme Court has actually moved slightly to the left of on criminal justice than where it was maybe 20 or 30 years ago. Um, now, I don't know if this is still true since Justice Ginsburg died, but before Justice Ginsburg's death, you had four liberals and then Roberts sometimes had an idiosyncratic kind of left leaning view on Fourth Amendment issues, especially dealing with technology. And Kavanaugh actually has some fairly liberal views about race discrimination in the criminal justice system. And Gorsuch has some sort of liberal views on things like the role of juries and like Gorsuch is very conservative. Roberts is very conservative. Kavanaugh is very conservative. But when you had four liberals plus Roberts, like on a Fourth Amendment issue, sometimes taking a lefty view, that gave you a majority on the Fourth Amendment. Now, I don't know. I mean, Barrett hasn't been there long enough that I can really have any sense of how she stands on criminal justice issues. But I do think that, you, you know, in the 1990s, Tough on crime was the thrust of the Republican approach to the judiciary. William Rehnquist, the chief justice, was really big on that. And that's just no longer the case. You know, the, the now I do agree with you that there's some areas where there's play in the joints, but like you know, for in, in on the civil docket. But one thing that really worries me is that there's a lot of what's called forum shopping. That, that that goes on in the courts. I mean, you see this a ton in the immigration context, as you know. Yes, yes, we do. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. All of the, I mean, like the, the shorthand for immigration cases over the last half decade has been that if it's Republicans challenging a Democratic president's policies, they're going to do so in the Southern District of Texas. And if it's Democrats challenging a Republican uh, Republican president's policies, they'll try to do it in the Northern District of California. And then if they can't get standing there, they'll go for the Southern District of California because that's a border district. So it's unequivocally OK. Right. Yeah. And like and it's not just an immigrant. I mean, so like I said that the judiciary is divided, it's divided up, to, I think, into 86 or 87 judicial districts. Those districts are in turn divided up into what are called divisions. And in many districts, if you file a case in a particular division, you're guaranteed to have it be assigned to a trial judge from that division. So for a long time, the only judge in the Fort Worth division was this guy named Reed O'Connor, who's a former Republican Hill staffer, basically a rubber stamp for the Republican Party. He's the guy who who said that the entire Affordable Care Act must be struck down. So, like, it does matter if you have a liberal circuit that can disagree with the conservative circuit. But the problem is that Republicans are going to bring all their cases in Texas, where they can often handpick the trial judge that they want. That decision is then going to appeal to the Fifth Circuit, which is one of the most conservative courts in the country, and then to a six to three Republican Supreme Court. So like, so, you know, I, I think that the, the challenge that Biden faces 
you know, and I can go into some of the cases that his administration is already losing on pretty ludicrous legal theories. The challenge that Biden is going to face is that there are 11 numbered circuits plus the D.C. circuit, and the federal circuit. Biden can have a liberal majority on 10 of them. But if the Fifth Circuit doesn't change, this Texas AG is still going to file a lot of lawsuits. They're going to handpick their district judge and Biden's going to lose a lot of cases. And a lot of his policies are going to be enjoined for that reason. Um, So I I think we should talk. I mean, we've been talking about, obviously, the Supreme Court and how that, you know, acts as a a cap on on the lower court judges. One thing that presidents try to do with their uh, circuit court picks is set up their future Supreme Court picks. And that is um, the subtext, right, of one of these particular choices is that she's being primed for uh, Stephen Breyer's spot. Is that am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. So to take a step back, you know, Biden promised to name a black woman to the Supreme Court. There's there's never been a black woman on the Supreme Court. And as I said at the top of the show, black women are really underrepresented in the federal judiciary. There is one particularly outstanding black woman in the federal judiciary right now. Uh, her name's Katanji Brown Jackson. She's currently a federal district judge. Uh, she clerked for Breyer. So she has like the sort of elite credentials that you typically look for in a Supreme Court nominee. And Biden just announced that he wants to promote her. He's going to give her Merrick Garland seat on the on the D.C. Circuit. D.C. Circuit is considered to be the second most powerful court in the country. I think three current justices came from the D.C. Circuit. If you read the tea leaves here, you you know, it's really likely that, you know, and Breyer's 82 years old, if he steps down soon, that uh, KBJ, as she's often called, Gitanji Brown Jackson, is going to be the nominee. Now, now I'll point out that he also named another woman. Um, Her name is... uh, Candace uh, Jackson Akawumi. And I mean, Jackson Akawumi isn't someone who's been around. I mean, she, she isn't currently a judge, but she's, you know, she was a public defender for 10 years. She clerked for a U.S. Court of Appeals judge. I believe she went to Yale. So, like, she also has the sort of resume that, you know, would make her a plausible Supreme Court nominee. So it looks like Biden is trying to fill out the possibilities that he could have should, you know, should a seat open on the on, on the big show. Should have seen it open. <laughs> and just as Breyer, if you're listening, the odds of Democrats uh, retaining their majority in the Senate in 2022 um, are not particularly high. So, you know, you might want to think yeah, about Now that. is the time to spend more time with your grandkids, Stephen Breyer. Uh, so I actually do want to talk about the kind of the knock on effects. Obviously, if you kind of run the logic back, If one of the important functions to serve in judicial nominees at the sub-Supreme Court levels is to tee up Supreme Court nominees, and if there's been an increasing interest in the last couple of decades in getting younger and younger Supreme Court nominees so that they can have longer and longer careers on the court, then there's a lot of kind of youthquake pressure on your lower court nominees. And we saw a lot of this in the Trump administration. I mean, also because like, even if they don't eventually all become Supreme Court nominees, which most of them won't, they'll still be in their seats for a very long time and will have a lot of kind of points in their career where if their primary concern is being replaced by someone nominated by a president of the same party who the president who nominated them was, then you'll they'll have a lot of, the longer their career, the more points they get, the more potential presidents of their own party or the president who nominated them's own party since nominally those judges are nonpartisan. 
you know, we definitely did see this taken to a really unusual and unprecedented level in the Trump administration with like lots of judges who were so far on the youth side that there were legitimate questions about whether they'd had sufficient experience with sufficient areas of law, whether, you know, not just like, oh, you have never been a public defender, so you're not qualified to deal with this area of law, but like, do you know how a trial runs because you've never been a trial lawyer? And it's interesting to think about that, in the, especially because Democrats are in a place right now as a party where, unlike Republicans, there is an institutional commitment to demographic as well as experiential diversity. Are we running into a place where if you have to find someone and not just who's ideally under 40, if not under 50, and is super duper qualified and is from an underrepresented group, are you narrowing your choices to the point where like, we can basically name who the next wave of district court nominees will be, or to the point where Democrats could be facing the same kind of problem Republicans have with, you want to find someone with impeccable ideological credentials who also has the necessary experience and isn't too old. And really, it's a pick two situation. So like one of my minor moments of guilt from very early in my career. So when I was in law school, I, I was on the Law Review, which is this kind of student run journal. And there's um, there are elections to choose the leader of like the next year's um, law school class. And there was this woman, Allison Jones, she now goes by Allison Rushing, who wrote a very well put together law review note. And like, I thought she was very smart and she ran for a high position. And I said, this woman is very smart. She is qualified for the job. I think we should elect her for this position. She is also extraordinarily conservative. And she was appointed to the Fourth Circuit when she was like 38 years old, which is way too young. Now, on the one hand, like, I hate that Allison, I mean, I actually like her personally. But I hate that Allison is a judge because her views are super right wing. And I think that someone who holds those views does not belong on the federal judiciary. But on the other hand, like, I actually think she is really smart and capable of doing the job. So, like, I mean, the reason I bring this up is, like, there were a number of really high profile Trump nominees who were dinged because, like, they really were unqualified. But I think that the overwhelming majority of Trump's nominees, and I've written about this before, were really, really smart. I mean, a, a lot of a lot of former Supreme Court clerks were fully capable of doing the job, even if they were like 35 or 40 years old when they were nominated. And that's especially true on the courts of appeals, because the court being a court of appeals judge is actually a much easier job than being a district court judge, because like you're just sitting in your office reading briefs. You don't have to make calls in the moment like you do when you're running a trial. And so, like, I guess the reason I bring this up, I, I always recall oil when I hear liberals make the Trump's judges were unqualified like argument because that makes them less scary. Like, like if, if someone doesn't know how to do their job, they're going to do a whole lot less damage than someone who is 35 years old, knows exactly how to do that job, has a very clear agenda to dismantle the administrative state, to give exemptions to religious conservatives, to all kinds of laws, to get rid of Roe v. Wade, to get rid of Obamacare, all the things that Republicans want to do, and is going to write very persuasive opinions arguing for terrible outcomes for the next 50 years. Can you actually explain that a little bit more? Because it seems to me to be in conflict with what you were saying earlier about how like 
we've already seen how the combination of forum shopping and a conservative, you know, Supreme Court can allow things to stand at lower court levels that wouldn't otherwise stand. No, that's a good point. I mean, like, it's not, you know, only the Fifth Circuit matters, like a lot of important. All circuits matter. Yeah, all circuits matter. You know, a lot of important cases come up through, you know, through every circuit and also circuit splits matter. So, like, you know, generally the Supreme Court takes a case when two courts that are directly below the Supreme Court disagree on the same question of law. And so one reason why these like super smart, super activist Trump judges matter is often they will write an opinion that's just way out in right field. Like, I mean, how can you possibly, you know, I'll I'll give you an example of one of these. This this was a district judge. But so the Constitution says that Congress regulate commerce amongst the several states. And the way that the Supreme Court has said that is like commerce normally means economic matters. So Congress has a lot of authority over economic regulation, much smaller authority over non-economic regulation. It's not economic. It's probably it's more likely to be struck down. So there was a challenge to the federal evictions moratorium. And, you know, an eviction is when you are kicking someone out of a home that they pay money to live in. And a Trump judge in Texas wrote an opinion striking down the eviction moratorium on the grounds that evicting someone, again, from a home that they pay money for is non-economic. Now, that's crazy. I I mean, like, I, I don't even understand how a fluent English speaker can reach that conclusion. But You know, that's going to go up to the Fifth Circuit. If the Fifth Circuit upholds it, now there's a circuit split. The Supreme Court has to resolve it. And, you know, the same thing is true. You know, if a, you know, wacko Trump judge on the Tenth Circuit writes an opinion that's way out in right field like that, it forces a circuit split. It goes up to the Supreme Court. And maybe the Supreme Court doesn't go all the way to saying like, oh, yeah, now evicting someone is an economic. But, you know, once you have a case involving the Commerce Clause in front of the Supreme Court, they may subtly shift the law to the right. You know, they they won't go as far as the other judges would go. You know, one reason, for example, why I think that our campaign finance law is so bad and why it's moved as far to the right as it has is because most campaign finance laws, they're called mandatory jurisdiction. The Supreme Court has to take those cases, whereas for most cases, they can turn them down. And so there's a lot of issues where I think the Supreme Court would prefer not to touch it. But if they're forced to touch it, they'll do something terrible. And if it's mandatory jurisdiction, there's nothing you can do about it. But if it's discretionary jurisdiction and you've got a really out there Trump judge or two Trump judges on a circuit court, they can force that issue up to the justices by opening up a circuit split. And then, you know, who knows what the Supreme Court's going to do. But then that does seem to kind of cut against what you were just saying about the idea that it is that the more qualified, more persuasive, less ideologically extreme Trump judges are going to be the ones that have the most durable impact on this, on the judiciary in the medium term, right? What am I missing here? Oh, no, no. Maybe I misspoke. You know, So I wasn't saying like, you know, when I was talking about my friend Allison or when I was talking about a lot of these really super smart Trump judges, what makes them so frightening to me is that they are simultaneously very, very smart and very, very extreme. Neil Gorsuch, I think, is emerging as the intellectual leader on the Supreme Court right now. Gorsuch is brilliant. 
And his agenda is he wants to dismantle the entire administrative state. Like, you know, he wants to give the Supreme Court a veto power over every regulation the EPA hands down, every regulation from the Department of Labor, every regulation saying that insurance companies have to cover things like birth control or cancer screenings or, you know, pediatric care. He wants a veto power over all of that. You know, he, you know, has hinted that he might think that, you know, some decisions from before the 1930s that said that things like child labor laws or at least federal child labor laws are unconstitutional. He's hinted he might be on board with that. So he's really, really extreme, but also really, really smart. And, you know, in a field, you know, the law is very much a field where if you write with flair and you're able to write persuasively about your idea, that matters. I think that makes him much more dangerous than an equally ideological figure who, you know, has less intellectual firepower. All right. I think we, let's let's take a break here. Come back. Uh, talk about talk about the movies. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive, it kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Our paper today is The Birth of a Nation, Media and Racial Hate by Desmond Ang. Um, so he is looking at, you know, if you, people know the history. There there have been sort of several different iterations of the Ku Klux Klan uh, throughout American history. Uh, originally, this is an organization that existed in the Reconstruction and Redemption era. Um, and then uh, D.W. Griffiths makes a movie called The Birth of the Nation, uh, comes out in 1915, I think it was. And it is a 
about the first Ku Klux Klan and is very celebratory of it and is, you know, widely beloved by racists at the time. Uh, Woodrow Wilson uh, talks about it. It's also considered, you know, by sort of cinema people to be a good movie um, for its era. It's a major technical advances in filmmaking are associated with it. So it's a very sort of compelling piece of cinema to people who, you know, were around at the time. Movies are brand new. At, at this time. So like real leaps and bounds in just filmmaking are taking place. Uh, so Ang's research looks at sort of where the movie was shown. And he demonstrates that there's a big rise in lynchings and race riots uh, after its arrival in a county. And then he even further tries to say that when you have in the 1920s, the sort of it's called the second Ku Klux Klan, which was a, a major thing nationally, in some ways bigger and more powerful than the first clan. Um, he says that the second clan is more popular, specifically in the places where um, the movie played. And, you know, he connects it to a, a bunch of research on various kinds of media effects that exist, um, you know, all of which tend to show that, like, you know, media matters. There's a lot of sort of research on this that what what people see does influence how they think and and what they do. And basically, the thesis here is that this was in fact an effective piece of propaganda for the Klan, for racism, for white supremacy. That you would want to say if you characterize the history of the period that Griffiths actually helped drive the sort of resurgence in Klan activity, rather than just that it sort of culturally illustrated that it's happening. There's something in the that kind of makes this possible methodologically that is also, I think, really important to understanding how this connection might have worked. I mean, for one thing, like the relative paucity of movie theaters that existed at that time, certainly in like more rural areas of the country, and the relative difficulty in covering large distances, uh, especially for people who, you know, weren't upwardly mobile enough to like have the most efficient car, does mean that that location is going to matter more here. Like there's a compelling argument that where a movie is shown now, I mean, now it doesn't, you know, most people don't go to movies, but like where a movie was shown two years ago, wouldn't necessarily be a predictor of where the people who were going to that movie lived, whereas it was at the time. But, but much more importantly, the reason that he's able to look at this kind of before versus after isn't just because like the movie came out in 1915, but because the way it was shown was via roadshow with like producers going from town to town and playing like limited runs in a particular movie theater, which is both a reflection of the technological and media novelty and innovation of Birth of a Nation. Like the, the, it really speaks to the difference between Birth of a Nation and the kind of shorter silent films that were the modal norm at the time. But also, you can kind of understand that as really encouraging personal identification, really encouraging this as an event, encouraging the massing of large groups of like-minded people together, which is generally something more likely to, you know, inspire spontaneous mass violence than everybody sitting, you know, at, at home uh, in their living rooms. But it does, it allows him to kind of look at what happened after the roadshow came to a particular place, as well as making it clear, like the paper opens with a quote from D.W. Griffith saying, oh, I had no idea it would lead to the resurgence of the Klan, which is, I'm sure there's some level on which that is true. 
But it's it speaks to the fact that the people putting this on certainly believe very fervently, not only in the power of the white civilian to beat back the forces of black emancipation, but also that creating that sort of massing and inspiring them was important to some undefined aesthetic or political project TK. So one thing that really struck me about this paper is if I think it described a kind of perfect storm of like the best possible conditions for a work of pop culture to influence political society, like everything that could have fallen in favor of this movie having an impact of our politics did. So like, first of all, like, you know, as Matt said, this was like as an artistic achievement, you know, setting aside the horrific Con- like content of the movie. It was a tremendous artistic achievement. It was like the Star Wars of its era in, in terms of transforming what people thought was possible in the medium of film. And think of the influence that Star Wars has had on our, on our culture. I mean, this had a, a similar impact on American culture for its time. But on top of that, like the second clan, I mean, it was super racist, but it wasn't just a racist organization. It, it, it was an anti-immigrant institution. It was very socially conservative. A lot of it arose from backlash against the sort of sexual liberation and the triumph of first wave feminism that we were seeing in that era. I mean, this is when the, the 19th Amendment was ratified and, and women got the right to vote. While this film was go, was traveling around the, the the economy fell into recession. So you had a great deal of economic resentment. You had the beginning of the black diaspora where workers went seeking work in northern cities. And so white communities in the north were suddenly living with and believe they were competing for jobs with African-Americans for the first time. You had a wave of Eastern European immigration, which was new. And there was a lot of resentment towards that. And so you had All of these factors happening at once that like fed economic resentment, that fed racial resentment, that fed anti-immigrant resentment and that fed sexist resentment all at the same time. The Klan was against all of those things. And then this film drops, which I mean, Alan Moore described it as a superhero movie where the Klan is the superheroes. So like. Under those circumstances where you have this enormous pop cultural event that speaks directly to the right wing resentments that already exist in a society and you have this organization that is being lionized in the film that also speaks to those resentments like I could see why this had an, an enormous impact on our politics. I'm doubtful that you would see similar impacts if you didn't have all of those tumblers line up in place. Yeah, and and you know, Ang is pretty upfront about this. And this is actually an argument he makes for like why this paper is important that most of these studies on media impact on personal political behavior or personal predilections toward violence are studies of media in our current fairly media saturated landscape. And that, you know, he there's an argument which I think is very plausible that you're more likely to see an effect in the reaction to Birth of a Nation than you would be for any media event in 2021. Regard, you know, even if all of the other tumbl- like historical tumblers were lining up, Ian, as you were saying, and that kind of points to the reason that the technical innovation of and like artistic innovation of Birth of a Nation matters in this context. When Birth of a Nation is discussed as kind of an act of film 
These days, it's usually in the context of like how or if it should be taught in film school or like what place it should have in the narrative history, how much credit should be given to its artistic achievement, you know, when that artistic achievement was in service of a morally abhorrent end. This is not that conversation. This is situating Birth of a Nation in like a pure history context where the technical innovation is important because A, it probably got butts in the seats on the margins who wouldn't otherwise have wanted to go see the film. And B, because it was likely to provoke an aesthetic reaction in the audience because of its novelty, because of, if you think about the difference between seeing a silent film and seeing a full length sound included film that is likely to be aesthetically overwhelming in a way that creates like a different aesthetic pathway than someone is used to seeing. So that kind of profound aesthetic experience is important to the conversation of its political impact. You know, it's not a either you regard the film as a monstrosity or you regard it as an aesthetic achievement. It's understanding the way in which those two work together. Wait, well, and, and so P- President Wilson in an what's an apparently fake quote, um, you know, said uh, it was like writing history with lightning, uh, which if you if you look at it, there's now a lot of questions as to whether he he really did say that. But I mean, the, the, the point is somebody was reacting to that, right? That not just uh, Wilson was somebody who approved the political content of the movie, but it's not like nobody had ever said before that like the redemption process was good or been racist, but that this was felt by sort of highbrow, dorky, history book writing racist people as like, this was really cool, right? This was going to bring the message to a broader audience in like a clearer, more awesome way than they than they had before. I should also note, there's an interesting um, instrument in the paper is that apparently the state of Kansas just banned the movie. Um, so you can look at, you could, you could do sort of synthetic controls and look at Kansas counties that are similar to other counties elsewhere. Uh, because it's just one state, there's not tremendous statistical power on the, on the Kansas comps, but, you know, it tends to support the view that, you know, uh, cross-border uh, counties did show it in Missouri and Nebraska. You know, you, you have an impact there. I think it's a little bit uncomfortable because, you know, I think normal people who appreciate the value of free speech and things like that, I think you want to say that like making a movie illegal because the content is bad will be somehow counterproductive, right? Like you would you would want to tell a story that it's like, okay, this movie's bad and like maybe it shouldn't be celebrated. We shouldn't encourage people to see it. But like if you ban it, right, that only makes it like more intriguing and things get even worse. But the finding here at least is that like, yeah, I don't know, like whether or not people go see a movie has something to do with how convenient it is. If you make it uh, inconvenient through heavy handed censorship, fewer people see it. The propaganda is less effective. You get beneficial consequences. I mean, I think I don't want to endorse the practice of banning movies because I don't know, for like obvious reasons. Uh, But like it, it is true. And I think you see over and over again in the mass media literature that these dissemination things, uh, 
matter. One of the papers they cite is is a, a, a paper I've I've referenced a few different times, but it shows that like putting Fox News on like an inconvenient channel uh, leads to fewer people watching it, which has some kind of noticeable political impacts. That's such a light intervention. Uh, but, you know, it, it again goes to show that there's like a lot of a lot of laziness out there. And so probably no movie today could have this kind of impact because you're just not going to have the, the quantum leap in, in technical proficiency, but like little things about how social media algorithms work, small editorial decisions about what kinds of stories people are fed, you know, plausibly have big impacts on what happens. And I think a lot of the people who make these decisions, it's too much power, right? Don't, nobody wants to take responsibility for that kind of thing. So you want to say to yourself, well, if certain kinds of things go viral on Facebook and those things are bad, really, that's just it's a reflection of human nature. Right. Of what people like to share. It's just showing a mirror up to ourselves. Or like, you know, the, the kind of stronger, like the steel man version of that argument is if you can square the circle and produce a piece of content that challenges the frame or that offers information that is, you know, socially salutary, however you're defining that while crafting it in such a way that it's going to ping those algorithms, then you're actually bringing it to the, bringing good information to the attention of people who would otherwise be getting bad information. Like that's kind of, you know, that's, that's the, that's the thing that an editor and a reporter will tell themselves when they're like writing the like social demand post is this is a way to kind of Trojan horse something useful into something that's going to exist whether or not we participate. I, I think it's important in this context that like it's not like Griffith like invented racism, right? Like obviously on some level, the only reason this movie got made and the only reason anybody went to see it in the first place is that like these ideas were present in American society. And to me, though, that's exactly what's uncomfortable here. They're like, it's not just the case that this reflected bad values that were present there. It's like by reflecting those values, it amplifies and concentrates them. It leads to worse things happening. And, you know, and, and you can't distance yourself from that by saying that, like, well, you're just sort of serving the market that exists or reflecting the attitudes that are that are there. Reflecting attitudes is itself a kind of powerful lever of change. So, so I want to jump in briefly, I guess, to stick up a bit for First Amendment absolutism. Good. Because, like, one thing that really makes me uncomfortable about the idea of Kansas banning this movie or, like, you know, and, like, there's emerging more sophisticated arguments amongst critical race scholars that, like, maybe we should have stricter bans on hate speech. And the question whenever you have any kind of legal regulatory regime is who's in charge of it? And the answer to that question right now is the Supreme Court is in charge of, you know, to go back to what we were saying earlier, the courts are in charge of the First Amendment. They decide what it means. And so in a world where we have, you know, a fairly absolutist view of the First Amendment, that means that Samuel Alito doesn't get to decide what speech we get to see. If you start to peel that back, like, 
I don't think that Samuel Alito is going to ban racist films. I think that if you know Sam Alito had the ability to decide what sort of speech we get to see, he would do things that benefit his party, the Republican Party, and that benefit conservative causes and that are bad for liberals. And so, like, I think the general problem and I mean, obviously, you see this as well with questions of like who Twitter should ban or like what Facebook should do if there was an all benevolent angel who could come in and like manage our free speech regime, you know, I would be much more comfortable. I might even say that it is a good thing to have very strict safeguards against things like hate speech. But in a world where like, you know, there's the possibility that Samuel Alito will be in charge and also the reality of Sam Alito being in charge. I think that, you, you know, we have to be very, very cautious about what they would do with their power. If you were addressing this from if if you were taking a bunch of policy grad students or whatever, mm. or like for that matter, you know, his high school history students and presenting them the, with the policy problem of like, you are a local official in the year 2021, the birth of a nation roadshow has fallen through a wormhole and is about to show up in your town. What do you do? Like, there actually is a fairly limited answer to that question, which is that one of the ways in which First Amendment absolutism has been eroded has been in its instantiation as freedom of assembly in terms of time, place and manner restrictions on protests and public demonstrations. And so, you know, it's it wouldn't be unheard of for a jurisdiction to say you can't get a permit for doing your birth of a nation roadshow because you're a bunch of racists who are going to incite you know, you were going to incite a lynching sooner or later, that wouldn't be as much of an infringement upon rights that are generally regarded as absolute by the judiciary as straight up banning the film would be. No, I mean, I, I think that that's true. I, I mean, I just I think that this it exists in the kind of conceptual space, though, that just like indicates that speech can do harms in the way that invites the kind of critiques that Ian was talking about. I, you know, and I, I think that that sort of pragmatic argument that Ian was making is perfectly solid, right? That like, I think especially if you take seriously the kind of cynicism about the legal system um, that, that you know, critical theory promotes, it makes very little sense to then say, well, you're going to turn around and like empower these same institutions to make these kinds of decisions. But, you know, there's, I think, of like a broader sort of cultural conversation always about like, should people be censorious about bad stuff? And like I, as a person who likes things and a high openness to experience person and somebody who, you know, thinks history is interesting and culture is interesting, I, I like I wish the empirics were less supportive of trying to shout things down. But like it seems to me that this movie is an unusual case, but an example of, I think, a fairly general um, kind of phenomenon that I mean, I think you also see on the other direction, right? I mean, I think certain technological cultural shifts in terms of um you know, I've read cell phone video and uh, social media usage has had a very liberalizing impact on racial views over the past five to 10 years. Um, and that's like been a, a big kind of positive driver of a lot of cultural changes. But the change hasn't been efficacious, like because it's positive. It just like happens to be the case that that's how the latest twist in technology worked. Seems fair. 
as, as a person who likes things, Matt Iglesias. Plus, some people don't like things. There's a lot of haters out there. If you are not a hater, you should uh, tell your friends, your colleagues, everybody about the weeds. You know, share us on your social medias, rate us on your iTunes apps, uh, all those other kinds of things. Haven't done a call in a while. Uh, thanks a lot for Ian for uh, joining us, enlightening us about the judiciary. Thanks as always to our sponsors, to our producer, Eric Janakis, and the weeds will be back on Friday. 